Okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you can take a seat, please. Take a seat and we will begin. Um, my name is Rob Havers, president of the George C. Marshall Foundation, and welcome to the second event of our Taking Care of the Troops sequence. As Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall famously said, we shall take care of the troops first, last, and all the time. Such was his dedication to the men and women in uniform. And in typical Marshall fashion, he worked behind the scenes to organize the USO, the Army Chaplain Corps, and following World War II, he served as president of the American Red Cross because he said that he felt he was most able to show his gratitude to those who had served through that position. You will see much of what I alluded to in the exhibition through the doors here, so please take a look at giving them what they need, the title of that exhibition. This evening, we again examine contemporary events and focus on what George C. Marshall might have faced had he been alive in 2015. 2015 with its technology and myriad innovations. We learned firsthand last month from Army Staff Sergeant Luke Murphy of the powerful and destructive power of IEDs and the resilience of soldiers like Luke to carry on against overwhelming odds. And tonight we are very fortunate to welcome Dr. Tom Van Doren and his team from HDT Robotics and the challenges of adapting to the new robot era. HDT Global is well known to many in this room tonight for its operations in Buena Vista and with its roots in Rockbridge County. Tom's team working in Fredericksburg, Virginia has developed an award-winning robotic technology that operates so that an arm can be attached to the human body or to a robot designed for bomb disposal and bomb removal. This is just the sort of cutting edge technology that General Marshall, I would believe, would have enjoyed seeing. So please help me welcome Dr. Tom Van Doren. Front lights down. <coughs> Just a okay, so uh, I've uh, been graciously allowed uh, four hours for a presentation. <laughs> so I have 270 PowerPoint slides with really small text. Pay attention to it all. Um, actually, I'm, we're going to keep this kind of short and sweet. Uh, there is no explanatory text on any of the slides other than this one. Uh, we're going to see, I, I think, what is some interesting technology. Well, I hope I think it, it's interesting. I've been working on it for a while, and, and so has our team. Um, as we go through the presentation, uh, please, if you have questions, uh, don't hesitate to wait until the end. You can wait till the end if you want to. You can hunt uh, uh, me down afterwards, but uh, go ahead and ask uh, questions as you have them. After I get done uh, yakking up here, we have uh, one of our robot arms that, uh, at least as of uh, 15 minutes ago, was working. Um, the, probably one of the primary characteristics of robots like this is that they stop working. Uh, so so I, I think it'll go, but, uh, but we've got to be a little patient with our, our robot friends. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about robots, but robots in a couple of different ways taking care of U.S. service members. Um, 
I'm not going to talk about Terminator robots. I'm not going to talk about autonomous killing machines. That's not what the U.S. military is looking at. Okay? What the U.S. military is looking at and what our company is looking at is ways to improve lives for U.S. service members. So he had the opportunity to meet someone at the last session who was grievous, grievously wounded in an IED attack. Because of um, uh, IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan recently, uh, we have seen an increase in the number of U.S. service members coming back from theater, uh, maimed, missing limbs. Uh, and these are young people that have many, many years, decades of useful life ahead of them. And so how is it that we, as a technical community, can help uh, these young people to, to have a better life, to have a better quality of life? So let me give you a little bit of history first. Right now, and this is still right now, about the most sophisticated prosthetic arm that can be used for someone missing an upper limb is right here. This is a myoelectric arm. It might have a powered elbow and a griper on the end, which is simply just two two fingers that open and close. That's as sophisticated as it gets. Um, and you might think, well, uh, that's not very sophisticated compared to what I see when I go down to the movies. <laughs> but furthermore, the problem with these things is, is that they really don't work all that well. And so a significant number of users of prosthetic limbs rely on something like this. This is a body-powered hook. It's got a, a Bowden cable. This is the same kind of cable that goes on the brakes on your bicycle. Mm -hmm. And he moves his upper arm and that opens and closes the hook that he's got on the end. Um, one of the engineers that worked on the program I'm going to talk about, creating a fancy new prosthetic arm, um, he still uses that. He was a, a retired Marine captain who lost his um, arm in Iraq and he has sitting in his closet uh, uh, several different powered arms that just don't work very well so he relies on this. So why is this kind of at least as far as an effective prosthetic arm goes why is that still state-of-the-art you know if that is 80 year old technology? Well <clears throat> if you look at the patient population across the world really of uh, people who are missing limbs, um, the number of patients missing a, a leg, a lower limb, is much higher than those missing an upper limb. And from a commercial standpoint, for uh, companies developing prosthetic limbs, um, I hate to say it this way, but the business case is there to develop relatively sophisticated prosthetic legs. And it's not there to develop prosthetic arms. And then you add on to that that the, the capabilities, the numbers of motions, the sensit, uh, sensing capabilities that you need to get out of a prosthetic leg are a fraction of what you need out of a human arm, out of an arm. Um, a, a, a very, very large fraction of your brain 
is dedicated to running these things right here, your arm and your hands. Okay, this is in many ways what makes us humans, you know, opposable thumbs. The things that we're all very grateful that our cats don't have, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the, there's an agency called the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. Uh, this is the same outfit that really did invent the internet. It was called ARPA then, and it was called the ARPANET, okay? Um, and this outfit specializes in funding and creating cutting-edge technology, okay? And they call DARPA projects, who is they? I don't know. I, I am one of the they that calls DARPA projects. DARPA hard, okay? When you get on a DARPA project, especially like the one I'm going to describe, uh, it is uh, like nothing you've ever done as an engineer or a scientist. Uh, lost sleep, strained marriages, wives that leave to visit mom with the kids for three months in the summer. That was my personal experience during the program. And she came back. That's good. But what DARPA has done is invested over $120 million, and that's a lot of money, in a program called Revolutionizing Prosthetics. And this program uh, was set up and started in 2006. So we're actually still working on it in the final phases right now. But we started in 2006 uh, to make a prosthetic arm, a robot arm, that is as close as we can get as technologists to what a human arm is. Um, and not only to create the mechanical piece, but to create a way for the users, the patients, the young people to actually use this prosthetic arm. One of the reasons why that, that highly advanced thing that I showed you that has a grifer or a gripper that does this, one of the reasons that's a limitation on the current prosthetic arm technology is because that's all the patients can control. How do you tell a hand with five fingers to make motions, okay, if you don't have access to the, the patient's brain or the patient's nervous system? And so actually most of the project uh, that is DARPA revolutionizing prosthetics was devoted to the neural integration. And we're going to see a couple of videos so you can, uh, don't have to listen to me talk the whole time. Uh, we're going to see some videos that show uh, different kinds of neural integration, okay? But the remit, the, the, the problem, the challenge that we were faced with, that our team was faced with, was to essentially make a mechanical variant of a human arm. Can you tell us what month and year that National Geographic came That was uh, January of 2010. 2010, yeah. And this was, this is kind of the naked version of the hand. Uh, one of our engineers is highly upset that we took the covers off <laughs> because it should really look like this. This is, um, <clears throat> I have to admit that one of the problems that we've had on this project is coming up with really cool, sexy names. This is called the Modular Prosthetic Limb, or the MPL. <laughs> okay. But it is a pretty fancy arm. This is the size, the shape, the weight, the strength of a human arm. Okay. Yes? If you've lost both arms, can they interact? Yes. yes. Those two hands? Yes. Yes. 
And some of the patients that are more motivated to get a prosthetic arm, many users or many amputees don't even get a prosthetic limb because they still got one arm that works really well. So if I've got one arm that works really well, why do I care about some clunky mechanical thing that I just have to drag around and it's heavy and inconvenient? Um, so we have done some clinical trials with bilateral amputees that have had two of these arms. Okay. Um, so this is the arm that we created, the, the sexually named modular prosthetic limb, um, on our part of the DARPA Revolutionizing Prosthetics Program. We are a subcontractor to the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab uh, south of Baltimore, uh, but HDT, uh, my company, created all the hardware that you see there. <clears throat> so let's, instead of listening to me talk the whole time, Let's watch some of these things go. This is a story that uh, was published about five days ago. I used to be a salesman, and in 2005, I was diagnosed with having a cancer in my left forearm. It was so aggressive, it just wouldn't even slow down. So in 2008, they have arm just above the elbow. I've got a second chance of life. You don't think that doesn't make me happy and give me that much more of a drive? Yes, it does. Ready and go. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. John Matheny has become something of a guinea pig for experimental prosthetics. Hand open. What he's testing here, here being the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, is a glimpse into the future of how humans and machines interact. It's a mind-controlled arm that attaches directly to his skeleton, and it's the result of a decade of work and $120 million of military funding. you don't have to worry about the suction on the stump connecting directly to the implant and so therefore they're, you can continue wearing it you know, no matter what. Johnny's implant allows for more strength and mobility but maybe more impressive is he can control the arm with his thoughts. For this he had to undergo another surgery to rearrange the nerves from his missing arm. Alright so we'll start the movement. Ready? This is kind of cool. Yeah. We are actually witnessing something that has never been done before. Is Johnny really controlling that limb simply by thinking about it with normal intuitive thought? We are using wireless myobands to transmit that muscle activity. So now when he thinks of moving his missing limb, it now contracts those newly reinvented muscles. Elbow flexion, ready and go. Hand open and go. Wrist rotate in and go. Ready and go. And go. And go. You wanna hand that to me? Getting Johnny to communicate with the arm is only half the challenge. The ultimate goal is for the arm to talk back to Johnny. Soon he'll be able to feel how hard or soft something is to understand its texture and even its temperature. As he moves forward, Johnny represents a future where robotics goes from being a tool we use to actually becoming a part of us. 
I want the ultimate arm. I want to be as near natural as a human arm as possible. Can you trust me? Yes. Yeah. Can you shake me? Good. Good. <laughs> like the Model 2 cars, around the Wright Brothers airplanes. You know, I'm the beginning, and as we progress, then you're going to see us move up to the Maseratis or the these supersonic jets. So we're going to say, Back to the Future has begun. Okay, so. The, I'm going to show you another um, uh, video clip here. Um, if you're squeamish, uh, there might be some pieces in this one where you want to close your eyes. Yes? I have a qu one question. The uh, metal stub that he has yes. sticking out of his arm, does that attach into the distal humerus? Yes. Then how do you keep it from getting infected? Uh, 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 you got to be very careful with it. <laughs> And so I, as a mechanical engineer, am not qualified to answer that question, but it's a, it's a big issue. It, There's it, cleanliness it issues. And an open system there to yes. for bacteria yes. into the yes. distal part of the humerus there. And then also, what happens if he falls? Okay, now he's got this metal thing threaded into the end of his humerus. And uh, is that going to break or not? So it's a non-trivial choice to do something like that. Yes? I don't think I heard that question, but can they sense anything? Um, uh, the yes. Of the yes. Or yes. Uh, this guy was not able to in that particular video, but the arm, the hand, has a whole bunch of sensors in it that can sense texture, force, temperature, and then the challenge is how you display that information back to the user. So for this guy, and we'll see at the end of this next video clip, he's in this one too, that um, uh, we've got some little tiny robots that we can put on his residual limb. And in response to a force out on the fingertip here, we can push there, and he feels that. And because he's had his nerves replumbed, he'll feel that as if it was his fingertip. Mm. The other thing I was wondering about does 3D printing technology come into this? Yes, so the, the, uh, many of the black plastic covers on there uh -huh. are 3D printed. They are. The, the, the battery case that went into the forearm was 3D printed. Um, the, uh, so plastic parts that don't have to bear a lot of stress, uh, we use 3D printing for them. Okay, so. Well, I'll just let this video explain itself. In a decade of war, more than 1,300 Americans have lost limbs on the battlefield. And that fact led the Department of Defense to start a crash program to help veterans and civilians by creating an artificial arm and hand that are amazingly human. But that's not the breakthrough. We don't use that word very often because it's overused. But when you see how they have connected this robotic limb to a human brain, you will understand why we made the exception. Virtually everything your natural hand can do, uh, this prosthetic is able to do. The same strength, too. Same strength? Same strength. So we can curl 45 to 50 pounds with, with the arm. The most sophisticated hand and arm ever developed. 
It's the same size and weight. We had our logo in there. Man's arm and, hand. <laughs> and everything is inside, including the computers and the batteries. Awesome. But the holy grail in the project was finding a way to connect the robot directly to the brain. One day I had trouble. In the evening I was making a lot of trips in and out of the car. It felt like my legs were dragging behind me. Within two years, a genetic disease called spinocerebellar degeneration broke the connection between brain and body. Last February, James Sherman for a more sophisticated version of the surgery that they had done earlier in the monkeys. May I have your addition? During the six-hour surgery, two sensor arrays, each the size of a feet, placed on the surface of James' brain. They were wired to two computer connections called pedestals, the gateways to Jan's thoughts. We came back to see whether she would be able to control the robotic arm with nothing but her thoughts. They plugged her brain into the computer, and this is what we saw. I can move it up and straight down, and left and right and diagonally. She can't move can anything from her neck down. And open it. And I can go forward and back. That is just the most astounding thing I've ever seen. Can we shake hands? Sure. No, really. Yeah. Like, come right over here. Yes, you come over here. Okay. Cross your hand there. We go. Oh my goodness. Of course, many who could use a robot arm are not paralyzed like Jan. They're amputees, and for them, the project has found a way to connect the arm without brain surgery. 57-year-old Johnny Matney lost his arm to cancer. Dr. Albert Chambers of John Hopkins Hospital found the nerves that used to go to Johnny's hand and moved them to healthy muscles in his remaining limb. Sensors on his skin pick up the brain signals from the nerves and use those signals to control the robotic arm. Come here, I want to see you. <laughs> it feels in, in your mind, like your hand is is there again. Yes. As if as if your arm had never been lost. Correct. Unlike Jan, the connection for Johnny runs both ways. Sensors in the fingers send signals back, so he can feel what he's touching. Okay, I'm holding the object. You can close on it to see how well we put him to the test. Hard or soft? Soft. Correct. He got it right every time. Hard or soft? Hard. <laughs> the progress is coming rapidly. They're working on a wireless version of the implant to eliminate the connection in the skull. And Dr. Jeffrey Lane told us that the lab experiments will one day enter the real world. Okay, that's pretty important right there. This is a gal who cannot move anything other than her head, and she was able to feed herself. Yeah. Okay, so where are we with this stuff right now? Um, the arms have been developed. Uh, there's actually another team that developed another arm. Uh, clinical trials are happening. Um, both of these patients that you saw in these videos are in clinical trials. Nobody gets to take these arms home. Uh, they're not reliable enough. Uh, they cost half a million dollars a piece. Um, the other team that developed an arm, there are take-home trials of that. 
But where we are right now, DARPA, what DARPA does <coughs> is they don't create CNN's website or Fox News's website. They created the internet. Okay, so they did the very first cutting edge technology. And then it's up to companies to turn this technology into products. And so right now, um, we, HDT, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, some other companies are trying to figure out how to turn these into products. And so half a million dollar arm isn't going to help anybody because no one can afford a half a million dollar arm. No insurance company is going to pay for that. So that gives me a nice segue into the next part of my talk. Um, so that will take us through the last three hours of the session. <laughs> um, and that is, well, how do you get the price of these things down? Well, the way you get the price of them down is you don't build eight of them. I think the total, total number of arms that we built is about 10. Okay, you don't build 10 of them, you build a thousand. Because with this kind of technology, the more you build, the cheaper it gets. Okay? So how are we going to do that? What are we going to do? Well, the very, and the, these patients that we saw here were not military veterans, although these arms are being used with military veterans at, at, um, at the VA and at Walter Reed. But how did our, out of our veterans who come back without a limb, how did they lose that limb? Okay, so let's look at the other end of the problem. What I've talked about up to now is after you've lost it. Well, can we do anything to prevent the problem in the first place? Prevention is better than cure in this particular case. So this is, um, I've just been violating a whole bunch of copyright stuff, so I hope you don't turn me in. Um, this is a photo from the Hurt Locker. Okay, so this is an EOD tech. And uh, this particular character in this movie just kills him. Well, EOD techs have a pretty serious casualty rate. They did it in Iraq and they did it in Afghanistan. So the bad guys weren't just interested in planting a bomb and blowing up people. They knew that the U.S. was going to send bomb disposal squads out to disable these bombs. And so they put booby traps out. So the EOD tech could go down, they disable the primary bomb, and then some guy <coughs> sitting off in, the, in the, the shrub somewhere would hit a button and blow up the tech. So <coughs> robots have actually gotten pretty decent acceptance in the U US military uh, for explosive ordnance disposal applications. And when we developed the prosthetic arm, the whole point of that thing was it needs to be as, as close as we can get to being a human arm. So do the same things that a human arm can do. Well, can we then port that technology to EOD robots so you can use the robot to do more things downrange and you don't send the kid in the bomb suit down there? Because he can and will get blown up. So there's a guy I know in Fredericksburg who is missing an eye, missing an arm. He went on 3,000 missions. He's an EMD tech. And the last one got it. Okay, so this is 
a Mark IV Talon EOD robot. Um, it's kind of an unlovely beast, but what I want you to focus on is what's going on out here. Okay, this looks kind of like that prosthetic arm that I showed you that doesn't really work all that well. Okay, don't get me wrong, these robots work. Okay, but they're not as good as they need to be to really do a lot of tasks remotely. Okay, so this is where we said, hey, HDT has developed this very lightweight, dexterous robot arm. Can we convert that over to a military application? So the guts of this arm right here are essentially the same as what's in that prosthetic arm. So many of the motor controllers, the gears, the motors themselves here are identical to what's in the prosthetic arm. It's strong, it's lightweight, and it's dexterous. So what we have been working on for about the last five years is to get better technology onto ERD robots. So this fall, um, we won uh, with a team led by Northrop Grumman. We won a program called uh, the Advanced Explosive Ordnance Disposal Robotic System, which is the next generation EOD robot. Okay, and this is technology that came straight out of the revolutionizing prosthetics program. Maybe not straight out of it. We had to invest a significant chunk of money to militarize it. Okay, and so now you get a more sophisticated arm <coughs> that can do more things. Okay, what kind of things can it do? Well, you don't necessarily just have to have one arm. If one is good, maybe two would be better. This one happens to be sitting on a, it's got a torso also. So it's got 27 joints in there that can theoretically do a whole lot of interesting things. Okay. <coughs> so what is that cost? Uh, oh. <laughs> the dual arm and torso system there costs about 400,000. 400, 400,000. Yeah. But, you know, so. Now we got two arms and a torso for less than one prosthetic arm. And the project that we just won, if uh, the production volumes are gonna be anywhere from 500 to 1,000 robots, and the arms are gonna cost about 20 to $25,000 each. They're gonna be simpler, but the price is coming down and you can do more of them. Okay, so what can these arms do? show you. So again, very fancy name for this. This is called the Highly Dexterous Manipulator. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. There's a hammer drill. We were not brave enough to use a sawzall. <laughs> there we go. So these are not designed to be delicate little toys. They're designed to do work. <laughs> now they can do delicate things. Some of you might think, well, we'd only do that with a hard boiled egg. <laughs> this for a robot is a tough thing to do. 
that dual arm system there is designed to lift 155 millimeter projectile, so 110 pounds. Here it is doing some. Again, okay, this is so easy for your toddler, for a robot. It's tough. This was actually some trials we did for the United Kingdom MOD. Is that thing remotely controlled? Yeah, this is remotely controlled. But how much engineering are you doing to make uh, those protected? I mean, what's to stop those being blown up? Um, not a whole lot. You just let them get blown up. And they're, they're modular, so you can replace joints in the field. And then the theory is it's a whole lot better to have that get blown up than it is to have a soldier get blown up. Okay, so Hannah, here's the part where I get a little bit frustrated, and I was telling this story uh, before we started. So I, I claim to my wife that I can be as patient as any particular situation requires. And, and when I told her that the first time, she just about fell off her chair laughing, and she said, no, you've confused perseverance and patience. Okay, so I'm not patient, and... We're still working on getting the military to buy this kind of a really sophisticated arm. Um, and we're getting there. So the next phase of this Idris program that we just won, we won the first phase of it, first increment. The next phase is going to have arms, a couple of arms that look something like this. But we've been able to at least get them to buy into lightweight, strong, kind of dexterous stuff. And so... This is a very small arm. Okay, this one right here weighs a little under 20 pounds. Okay, and it's about three feet long. That one right there weighs about four pounds and is about two feet long. Now, we're back to this silly two-finger gripper thing on the end, which I don't like, but, you know, cost is, is part of this. The next. The next variant, the next larger size of the Idris robot will have three-finger indefectors on there. <clears throat> but each one of these actuators, and I'm sorry I didn't bring one of these arms, is about that <coughs> that tall and you know an inch, inch and a half in diameter. Well, those actuators, which are getting cheap now, <coughs> you know this will be a $5,000 actuator instead of a $25,000 actuator. Okay, well, that's more than strong enough to be an elbow on a prosthetic arm. And it's small enough and light enough that you could use that in a pediatric application, too. <coughs> so, you know, all through this, this development effort, we're plotting and scheming, you know, how do you get the price down on this stuff? How do you extend it to more applications and let more people use them, especially in the prosthetic application? I spent nine years of my life working on these fancy prosthetic arms and people aren't taking them home and using them. Okay, how frustrating is that? <clears throat> well, it's pretty frustrating. <laughs> so, this happens to be the arm. Um, I'm very proud of our technicians. They got a whole bunch of logos on here, so no matter what you take a picture from, it's HDT. And, and you notice in the, in the two videos, 
Johns Hopkins, if you see any press on this, these programs, they never mention HGT. Okay, so we gotta have logos stuck on there. Uh, but this is this is the next generation farm. And I'm just gonna wind up with some a little bit of amusement here. So where do you use robots? You use robots where it's so expensive and so dangerous, you'd be insane to send a person down there. Okay, so that's why we're using them for explosive ordnance disposal robots. That's why you don't have a robotic companion walking around with you in the neighborhood. Although that's nice to have at the level of technology that we've got right now is so insanely expensive that you can't afford to do it. Well, what's about the most dangerous application you could possibly come up with? This is an underwater explosive ordnance disposal application. So think limpet mines on ships. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> we, uh, we are currently in development on these. Um, we just finished one Navy project and we're getting ready to get another one. But, you know, it's, it's about 10 times as dangerous to send a, a diver down to do this kind of stuff as it is to do it on the ground. And so, you know, we're taking that same technology that started out on the DARPA revolutionizing prosthetics program, and we're taking it out of the water. Whoops. Come on, this little thing. So that thing's just floating around. It's hovering. There's uh, this is out in the harbor, so there's a little bit of a current. Not a whole lot, but they're trying to identify. So they've got some operators topside identify and you know nail that target. Okay, so there again, we're both working on the end of the problem where after somebody gets injured, how do you give them a better life? And we're trying, we're trying hard. But to the extent that we can keep that from happening in the first place. Um, we're also working on that. Now, what I'm not going to show you tonight, if you go cruise our website and look at YouTube, you can see some other robots that we've got that are assistive robots for dismounted troops. That's a big turbo diesel powered tracked thing that carries stuff around for them. We've got a uh, robotic gizmo that is going in hospitals right now uh, to treat stroke patients to teach them how to walk again. So, you know, we're HDT, we're right down the road from you, about five or six miles, but we did more than, than just um, what you may have thought, you know, with some of our expeditionary systems equipment. Uh, we do the robotic stuff too. So, um, I think we can get the lights back up. And I'm gonna attempt to show you a robot operating. Um, the thing about software guys is they like to really tinker with um, the software that goes on these robots. So they keep changing stuff. And for me to keep track. And uh, so I'm, I'll be able to control this arm. And it's, you know, it's obviously clamped to the table so it's not going to come after anybody. <laughs> I can't guarantee it won't come after me. Um, but, uh, but I'll run this a little bit and then um, uh, anybody who wants to can can come up and take a shot. It's uh, it's a little 
little difficult to operate tonight. But before I do that, and while we're waiting for the thing to, so this is why you don't have to worry about the Terminator robot, right? Because this this evil robot bolted to the table over here is just waking up, and it's going to take it a while to wake up. And then generally, there's a red button that if you need it to stop, you just hit the red button. So, and if the Terminator comes after you, just look for the red button. Or <laughs> <laughs> wait a couple of minutes and it'll stop working. Uh, okay, so any any questions? How far away can you be with a remote control device to control this? Um, across the country. Hmm? Across the country. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, so once you get remote and you're wireless, Okay, then you can theoretically go. We've, uh, for, for our big load-carrying robot, we've got a uh, package that we designed uh, for, for satellite communications, so low-Earth orbit satellites. So you could have an operator, just like drones, you have an operator in Fredericksburg and a robot in Syria, hmm. and he could drive that robot. Wow. Now, generally, for the EOD applications, they're operating up to a uh, up to a kilometer, <coughs> so a little bit less than a mile. Why is the military resistant? Is it the cost? Um, the cost is part of it. The resistance is coming down. The big resistance the military has got is to any robot that has a weapon that can fire that weapon on its own. Okay. They don't like that. I don't like that. Okay. I don't trust the robot to decide who it's supposed to shoot at. So when you see, and robots are coming, and we have some that have, like we've got one that's got a Gatling gun on it. And then the robot that's deciding who to shoot is a guy with his hand on the trigger, no different than it would be with a conventional weapon system. So, <clears throat> you know, the cost is certainly one thing. Robots have... Uh, Historically, been very unreliable, um, so we're working on fixing that. Um, and then uh, there's institutional inertia in the military. Um, you know, just it's something new, and so why should we take this on? You know, when the Chinese come out with something, that's going to scare us a little bit, and we'll get more excited. But I tell you what's doing it right now, and there's a lot more interest, and there's some programs coming, uh, funded programs, is the uh, cuts in the number of troops, especially in the army. Uh, they understand, we understand that we have to do the same missions with fewer people. So if I can have a robot carry all the gear around for me as I'm uh, trudging down a trail in the jungle, you know, that means I can go farther, um, uh, I'm better in a fight when I get to the objective. Um, and the robot helps. I didn't have more guys carrying stuff, I had some machines carrying things. What kind of training does it take then to operate these? So the, um, the EOD operators uh, go through a fair amount of training in order to get up to speed on one of these robots and start becoming effective with it. It's a couple of days, you know, you can start doing stuff. Uh, but, um, you know, to get really, really, really good, some of these guys have years of experience. So it's like anything else. So are they like with joysticks? Or uh, yes. Uh, so. The, this is a joystick. This is uh, the maybe the world's most complicated joystick. Um, uh, and this, we use this to operate that arm right there. And this is what we call a 10 degree of freedom joystick. So it has 10 different motions that it can make. And so we've got three paddles on here for the fingers. 
let's see if we can magically get this thing uh, go. Oh. Yeah, I think I'll be okay. <coughs> so if I start screaming really loud, uh, you don't have to run because it can't go. Okay, so it's, apparently it's starting. Okay, so I'm using three different paddles here to operate this. And I can, I got a wrist there that I can twirl around, do all kinds of things, get myself lost. <laughs> yeah. And then if I get really lost, I can say, you know, go back to somewhere where I think I know where it is. For your controller, have you ever used any form of a glove? Yeah, um, like a cyber glove. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I personally tend to like something like this a little bit more because you can hand it off from one operator to another. Mm -hmm. And with a cyber glove, and then you put some sensors on your arm. What he's talking about yeah. is a glove that has uh, finger sensors in it. So you end up doing, like say you have a two-arm system. So you've got a robot out there remotely and uh, you're trying to do something and so you end up standing there like this okay and yeah your arms start getting tired and with this one i have a trigger on the uh the, the hand controller right there that i can mm -hmm. freeze the arm in place and, and do things like that how many eod people you have working for you um we have um in in our company we have just a couple um, but the our customers uh, tend to be all EOD types, mm -hmm. and it's the senior non-coms in the EOD units that kind of rule the roost. <coughs> and so those those are the guys that we work with to um, try to understand what it is that they need. Is this stuff classified into your engineers' all the security clearance? This is not classified, <coughs> thankfully, because that makes it uh, really difficult to. Uh, work on the programs. Um, our uh, so if you're familiar with export controls on military technology, there's something called ITAR, which means you can't send U.S. military stuff to the bad guys. This is not even ITAR. Okay, it's a, got a uh, Commerce Department jurisdiction. Which yes, you can't sell it to Iran. You can't sell it to to North Korea. Um, and we only work with uh, allied countries like the U.K. Um, the Japanese just bought one of these arm systems. So uh, there are some parts of the EOD robots that are classified. You know, so the the program that we're on right now to supply the next generation, there are classified components on that. It's just not the arm. Are other countries working on things like this? Yeah. To your knowledge? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Now, something that kind of astonishes me is that the Japanese are coming to us for this arm. Okay, so you know you kind of think of the Japanese as being fairly sophisticated on the robotics, but in this particular case, the lightweight, the dexterity of this thing—it's uh, we're pretty unique. I think we have. Since it's not classified, you might want to—if you're looking for areas to expand, you might want to go to the oil and gas industry for offshore. Uh, oh yeah, we're industry. talking to them for the underwater stuff. So. Mm -hmm. Figuring that might be on. Uh, mm -hmm. What percentage of your effort goes into software? And what percentage of the hardware? Okay, so 
there's the theory and there's the practice. <laughs> the theory is that it's about a third mechanical, a third electrical engineering, and a third software. The practice is when you're working on a project, you run over your schedule, and about a week before you're supposed to deliver, you hand it to the software guys and you say, this has got to work. Um, but, uh, and then they can come back at you and then when you're going out to do a demo of an arm, they do a new software build <laughs> that you don't know how to use, so it all comes around in the end. Uh, but it's, there's a lot of software to it and I guess one of my critiques of the arm systems that we've got, even the prosthetic arms, is that we have such a marvelous electromechanical arm, but we have not yet tap all the capabilities of it because we don't have the software to tell it to do what we want it to. I mean, this thing should be able to tie my shoelaces in the dark, right? I, I have a little difficulty with that, but <laughs> it should be able to, right? You know, and it can't yet. You sound like an engineer yeah. software. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not a software guy. Who develops your software? Uh, we, we have uh, engineers, so we do it all. We design our own gearboxes, our own motors, our own electronic boards, we write our own software, we do it all. There are, I'm not even sure there's a screw in that arm that's not modified. It's all custom, which is one of the reasons why it's so expensive. Yeah. Have you done any tests with uh, these arms with live explosives? Uh, not with these. There, uh, with some of our robots, we've done explosive survivability tests, and they didn't. <laughs> um, this, these, these arms, the EOD arms, so when we uh, start delivering them, they'll be in 2017. Uh, the operational units, they'll start using them. They'll start getting blown up, which is fine with me. I mean, every robot that gets blown up is some 20-year-old that didn't get blown up. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, your current prosthetic limb, yeah. how long is the battery life? Um, the theory is, here we go again, that it's um, about at eight hours. So you would have to have one change out in a reasonable day. And that's why if you saw in the one video, he clipped in the battery. And so the, the philosophy had, we had on that was like a cordless drill. You know, I'm not going to take my arm off and plug it into the wall and leave it on the <laughs> counter in the kitchen, right? I'm going to get a new battery and I'm going to pop it in there. And for the next generation, have you already thought about the noise reduction? Yeah, so you heard the fingers. Now, on this one, the upper arm joints are pretty quiet. The fingers are still noisy. So we know how to fix that noise. It's just, you know, time and money. But that's an issue. I want to talk about uh, interchangeability. You talk about modularity, but yeah. talk a little bit about interchangeability when things get blown up. Okay, so um, this arm right here, all of these joints, and I can't do this, so you're just going to have to trust me. All of these have a quick connect between the, the various different chunks of the arm. So if the arm does get blown up, well, first of all, you can take the arm off the robot and replace it. If you blow up the end effector, you can take it off and you can put a new one on, okay? And actually, these joints right here are interchangeable with the prosthetic arm joints, too. So I don't know if you recall in the 60 Minutes video, there were two prosthetic arms 
mounted to a torso that was made out of these components. So that's that's one of the things that the military really likes. And let me get back a couple of slides here. This particular arm, each one of the, I call these things actuators, it's motors. It's got gears and electric motor and electronics and stuff in it. Each one of these, there's five of them here, they're all identical. Okay, and I've just got <coughs> screws that hold them on. So if I got a hex key out in the field, I can take this thing apart, I can rearrange the joints, I can swap out one of the joints if it's bad. Um, so that, that's one of the one of the characteristics that, that won it for us. So this is a, a big competition. I mean, it, it wasn't just us going after this. We had competitors. Other questions? Or ever curious one? You said other countries are developing. Yes. Do you share information on your development activities? Um, we tend not to share a whole lot of technical information, uh, but we do share kind of high-level applications type stuff. And so we're talking about uh, oil and gas exploration. Uh, there's a university in Edinburgh, Scotland that's got one of our underwater arms. And uh, so they're using that, and obviously we're working with them. And that has got to be, my hair is falling out because of that project, because you send one of these things underwater and it leaks. and. Mm. I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> okay. Tom, thank you very much. We have a total token in our esteem, the words of George C. Marshall. Marshall quotation for every occasion. Okay. Perhaps when you come back to the room, yeah. can yeah. deliver one of those quotations. I'll have something to say. Good. Indeed. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure what you all thought, but I thought that was tremendously informative and a wonderful... Uh, insight into where we're going, I think. Yeah, that was just the introduction. I think. Think, yes. <laughs> Before the rest of the lecture, there is refreshments upstairs. Please take a look at our exhibition and join us again on December 3rd for a behind-the-scenes event, the next uh, event of the Marshall Legacy Series. Thank you, as always, for coming, um, and join us again. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.